Welcome, everyone, to episode 121, Science Communications. I am Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How's it going over there, Dalen? I'm jumping out of my seat. I'm so excited to talk to another science communicator. I talk to a science communicator in yourself very regularly, but now you guys are going to have me outnumbered. I'm like a science fumbler. I don't communicate as well as I could, so I'm outmatched. You are a communicator extraordinaire, sir. Oh, I thought you were just going to give me the, you do communicate. (laughs) You do some things. There we go. (laughs) That's the worst. (laughs) You, You exist. You exist. You're here alongside the rest of us. Now, marching in step, doing the communication, trying to help everybody understand what the heck is going on in this world of science and specifically stem cells here that we're doing. Should we get down to business? Yeah, I'm ready. You're ready. Let's jump in. Everyone, make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources there. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And don't forget, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, you can subscribe to us to get us weekly or I guess bi-weekly on your electronic device of choice. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. New episodes will download automatically to you. We have a great show ahead today where in addition to the latest science and stem cell news, we have an excellent guest as Dalen was kind of teasing there at the very beginning of the show. We're going to be talking with a PhD student, Samantha Yamin. She's also known as Science Sam on social media, where she has developed a large audience through her communications efforts. So we're going to be talking with her about her research and also about how she embraces science communication, using it to tell the story of science. Oh, the story of science. What a long story. Put you to sleep. But her story is actually pretty interesting. So get ready to get live. But first, before we do that, we got to remind the listeners about Neural Cell News, you know? Neural Cell News covers the latest top research in the field of neural development and neuroregeneration neural signaling, synaptic plasticity, all that. In addition, research into the diagnosis, progression, cellular characteristics, and treatment of brain cancers, neural damage, and diseases like Parkinson's, MS, Alzheimer's, ALS. We talk about all these on the show. And the newsletter covers them all. Also covers industry news, events, and jobs in the neuroscience field. So subscribe for free to keep current with the neuroscience field at neuralcellnews.com. And with no further ado, Kiki, I think it's time for you to set it off. Let's round it up, everybody. Okay, let's go into the political science. According to a new Pew Research Center survey, in which 2,537 people were surveyed from April 23rd to May 6th, about 80% of American adults think that Government spending on medical research, engineering, and technology, and basic science usually leads to meaningful advances. And this is across partisan divides. Democrats, Republicans, independents, 
people think spending on science leads to improvements and advances. So this is very exciting news. We can all get along there, right? Of liberal Democrats surveyed, 92% said government investments in basic science research usually pay off in the long run, and that is uh, terminology from the survey. Of the conservative Republicans, 61% agreed. And this general agreement, you know, almost (laughs) over 90% of the liberal Democrats and these conservative Republicans, over two-thirds, agreeing, this agreement broke down when it came to the discussion of where that money should come from, whether it should be government spending or private investment. Two-thirds of conservative Republicans say that private investment alone would be enough to see that scientific progress gets made. But only 22% of liberal Democrats agree with this concept. This is very similar to surveys that were undertaken in 2017, 2014, and 2009, also by Pew. However, 2001 did not see these kinds of partisan divides in the private versus federal spending domain. So something's happened in the almost 20 years since uh, 2001, but there is still good news in that we can all agree that spending on science is good. Usually. Usually. (laughs) It usually pays off. (laughs) I like these surveys because they make me feel good, like people like us. But it's very amorphous. It's hard to Mm. put your finger on it. For instance, private funding would be enough? Are you crazy? I mean, that's such a small fraction of the funding that's out there. So I wonder if the people who took the survey were really informed about the scope of the funding. And, mm-hmm. you know, I wonder really what the, the measures there. Usually it's kind of hard to put your finger on what they were measuring. Exactly. What does this usually mean? And then, you know, there are large multinational efforts or at least cross-disciplinary efforts, things like the Human Genome Project. These could not have been done without federal investment. I mean, there was some private investment in it, but really it was that coordination at the federal level that allows some of these really big projects to take place. And maybe that's a place where science communication and education to the public has a role to play moving forward. Well, moving forward, let's talk about crazy things that scientists are doing in the name of science We're editing mammals all over the place. Gene editing, it's really coming to the forefront. And a recent report came out in Nature Biotechnology about the use of gene editing tools to edit a gene in the liver of adult monkeys in order to lower blood cholesterol levels. The hope is that this could be the kind of treatment that could be used to help human patients with heart disease issues, cholesterol issues, where medications don't work. This could potentially be a last-ditch effort to reduce heart disease-causing cholesterol levels. So researcher James Wilson and his colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania targeted a gene called PCSK9, and this gene produces a protein that hinders, that gets in the way of removing LDL cholesterol, which is low-density lipoprotein from the blood, high levels of LDL can raise your risk of heart disease or stroke. 
There are a lot of drugs that are developed currently to control LDL levels. However, they don't always work for all people. And Wilson's lab was using an interesting approach with adeno-associated viruses that are used in gene therapy to deliver editing tools to cells. And they, in conjunction with a type of CRISPR, were able to cut the PCSK9 gene in mice. But it didn't work in rhesus macaques. So they switched from their adeno-associated viruses to a gene editing tool produced by Precision Biosciences that's called meganuclease. This is like, I don't know, it makes me think of some crazy superhero or something. But meganuclease is an enzyme that is able to get in and snip things up. And when given in conjunction with the designed CRISPR, after four months, six of the treated macaques carried this knocked-out PCSK gene in 64% of their liver cells. And this is a dose-dependent response. At the highest dose of the treatment, the animal's blood levels of the protein fell by 84%, and they saw a concomitant decline in their LDL levels of 60%. Eventually, the edited cells stopped making the meganuclease or producing it, and so the enzyme doesn't linger around, which is actually a good thing, according to the researchers, because if it were sticking around, it could cause continued and unwanted edits. The meganuclease treatment caused liver enzymes to rise, which indicates an immune response, which isn't completely unexpected because the Meganuclease comes from algae, which is not a mammalian protein, and so the mammalian immune system would be expected to elicit a response. It also wasn't completely efficient because it made cuts at sites other than the PCSK9 gene, and this is a little worrisome, those kinds of mutations that lead to things like cancer. But with more improvements, who knows, maybe this could lead to a, another treatment for high cholesterol levels, and heart disease. I love it. I love these biohacks. So cool. It's like go outside of the, you know, physiology and just fix it. Let's be honest, when that (laughs) meganuclease gets out, whoa. Wow, I know. Just fix it. Meganuclease to the rescue. (laughs) Until it goes rogue on us, and then we got to watch out. So pretty cool, though. Speaking of things going rogue, we've talked before about the idea of gene drives, right? The idea of putting a gene, maybe say in something like an insect, like a mosquito, that would destroy their ability to reproduce and wipe them out, right? And these gene drives, supposedly, they perpetuate themselves in genetic systems uh, to the detriment of other genes. That's kind of the selfish gene hypothesis in action. Well, researchers have used CRISPR for the first time to demonstrate gene drive in mammals. They created a novel strain of lab mice. And this is really their goal. They don't want to wipe out wild populations, as we do potentially with mosquitoes. But in fact, they want to be able to create novel strains of lab mice in less time and more efficiently. More and more researchers are trying to look at multi-gene effects and so are requesting multiple gene mutations or gene edits in strains of lab mice. And so laboratories like Jackson Lab are having to come up with this. And it maybe takes five years to produce 
a new strain of multi-genetic edited mouse, and this could potentially make it go faster. So anyway, for the first time, this isn't done in an insect, done in mice, posted 4th of July on BioArchive, which is an online preprint site. This team at UCSD, led by geneticist Kimberly Cooper, reported their results. Another researcher, Gaetan Bergio, he's a mouse geneticist at John Curtin School of Medical Research in Australia, not involved in the research, but he said nothing is really known about gene drives in rodents. We all assumed the efficiency would be the same as in flies, but it turns out to be very different. And in fact, it's much less efficient in mice than it is in flies. And the result is the reproductive process itself. The researchers built their gene drive by engineering female mice to carry the gene for Cas9, which is the DNA cutting enzyme, and engineered males to carry the guide RNA that takes the Cas9 to its target in the genome. And they added in a gene that modifies coat color in the mice. The breeding led to pups that had the genes for Cas9 and the guide RNA and the gene components on different chromosomes. So Cas9 makes its cut, it repairs the cell damage, and the success of the gene drive is based on how it gets repaired. So the cell can either reconnect the severed strands where the Cas9 cut it, or put in this new gene, the new DNA. And this is a process called homology-directed repair. And gene drive harnesses this homology-directed repair in the insertion of the new gene. And so that's what the researchers wanted to see. They manipulated Cas9 to turn on only during meiosis, the process of cell division that creates the sperm or the eggs. And chromosomes naturally are swapping DNA during meiosis. So they thought this would be a very efficient time to make this switch. However, the experiment did not work in males, and they think it's because spermatogonia go through mitotic division before the meiosis, which could get in the way of this homologous-directed repair. But in females, the gene drive succeeded. So only females, it copied the coat color-modifying gene to the partner chromosome in the eggs, which raised the odds of the offspring that would inherit it. And in one female mouse, 79% of her eggs had this coat color gene on the chromosomes. And if she mated with a male that didn't have the gene, 90% of her pups inherited it. So the worry of gene drive is that it will continue uncontrolled in populations. But in this particular gene drive, they think it would stop spreading in a mouse population after a few generations because the two gene components, the Cas9 and guide RNA, are in different chromosomes. And so they'd get gradually kind of get separated through natural processes within the genome. Cooper and her colleagues stress the challenges of creating efficient gene drive for mammals. Quote, the optimism and concern that gene drives may soon be used to reduce invasive rodent populations in the wild is likely premature, but could be great for laboratories. No, for sure. I mean, to, to me, this and all the other CRISPR-related kind of technical developments in making transgenic mice, uh, in, in most cases, I think could be appropriated to make all kinds of genetically engineered monkeys, really, which where the major obstacles is generation time. But if you could do it in one generation, hit a bunch of genes, I feel like we're getting very close 
to doing complex disease modeling and mm -hmm. genetic analysis, developmental analysis using a primate system. It's going to be a whole new field. The world is a wondrous place and we're changing it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're screwing it up because yeah. it's so beautiful. Yeah. Cue the little mermaid, right? <laughs> a whole new world. Oh, Ariel. Final story for me for the roundup has to do with mice and controlling their hunger. It's not really necessarily to control the hunger in mice that is the drive for this study, but really to understand it better in people. But published July 6th in Science, researchers were from the Yale University School of Medicine and also from the Singapore Bioimaging Consortium Agency for Science, Technology, and Research. We're looking at the hypothalamus and an area within the hypothalamus called the nucleus tuberalis lateralis or the, the tuberal nucleus within the hypothalamus. It's known to be in one of the nuclei in the hypothalamus in the human brain, but according to the researcher from Singapore... Yufu, almost nothing is known about the region. We've known about it since the 1930s and really know nothing about it. However, we do know that there are somatostatin-producing cells within this area of the hypothalamus, and somatostatin is very important for controlling the pituitary, controlling growth hormone, and many other endocrine hormones. It's also involved in the gut and how the gut works. Anyway, the researchers, instead of studying this in the human brain, they're looking at it in a mouse model. They found that there is an area within the brain of the mouse, a cluster of cells in the hypothalamus, that correspond very closely to what is seen in the human nucleus tuberalis lateralis. And when they modulated these cells by either blocking somatostatin or using other molecular techniques, activating the cells. They used laser light and uh, other techniques. They were able to artificially stimulate the mice to eat more and gain weight faster than normal mice. When they killed the neurons, which is similar to dysfunction that's seen in Huntington's and Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's, the mice didn't eat as much. They gained less weight than mice that still possessed the cells. And so the results in mice suggest that these neurons within the NTL influence the impulse to eat and subsequent changes in weight. And so understanding how these cells are involved in feeding behavior, not just hunger, but the behavior to go get food, may be very important in our human efforts to either control obesity or to help people who have changes in appetite due to neural dysfunction. I'll tell you what, my tuberalis is really acting up right now. <laughs> tuberalis, lateralis. <laughs> <laughs> That's important work, though. I feel like, yeah. we, I, did we already figure out with the whole leptin thing? Or I guess that mm -hmm. was the body. Now we're getting to the neural component. Wow, the tuberalis. Yeah, yeah mm. so it's uh, leptin, ghrelin affects this area of cells as well. So it's a hormonally affected area that affects hormones and it's all connected. Yes, oh. but getting into it, trying to figure out all of the ways the neurons talk to each other and control the things we do. Yeah, like get me to get a burger. My two <laughs> is trying to drive me out of here, but I can't leave. Not yet. Not yet. Nope. I got some rounding up to do. I'm going to start with the heart. 
because the heart is where it starts. All right, I'm going to stop. This is a huge story, Kiki. It was in Nature Biotechnology. You know, people have been talking about heart repair for a long time, but I think we're getting closer than ever. So we all know you have a heart attack. Hopefully not. But if you do, the big deal is that you can restore blood flow to the heart and kind of in the acute phase, fix it, right? But then the scar tissue forms and then eventually leads to congestive heart failure. So, you know, although there's a million kind of treatments, we've kind of, you know, been dancing around the issue here, which is the scar. We need new heart muscle. And Dr. Charles Murray has kind of, you know, been taking the lead on this, on generating new cardiac muscle from induced pluripotent and embryonic, human embryonic stem cells. And in this study, he's kind of like just blown all previous work out of the water in terms of scale, right? So what they did, Dr. Murray and his team, and by the way, we're, we're trying to recruit Dr. Murray on the show, so maybe we can have a more cursory exploration of the work here and go deep with him when he joins us. But for now, I'll just tell you, his team, they induced heart attacks in macaques, and that's the big deal, you know? We've been doing a lot of this in mice and pigs, but now we're scaling to macaques, not quite human scale, but non-human primate. It's a big deal. They induce these severe heart attacks in macaques. And then two weeks later, they inject 750 million. This is an epic scale of uh, cardiomyocytes that are derived from human embryonic stem cells. They inject them in the tissue within a month. There's a 10% improvement in the left ventricular ejection fraction, which is the commonly used measure of the heart pumping efficiency. And in contrast, just normally, just the, the control mice that weren't treated, they had a 2% improvement, which you would expect just normal basal kind of ineffective regenerative processes. So you get a five-fold increase in the regenerative potential. And that was a month later in two other mice. And, you know, the N is small here because monkeys are expensive and the scale of cells that they're injecting is huge. So it's a pilot, but an important one. They had two animals that they let go for another two months for a total of three. They showed improvement too. So it looks like the, the effect is sustainable. To quote Dr. Murray, our findings show that human embryonic stem cell derived cardiomyocytes can remuscularize infarcts in macaque monkey hearts and in doing so reduce scar size and restore a significant amount of heart function. End quote. So previous work has shown a similar benefit at human derived human ES-derived cardiomyocytes in smaller animals, like I said earlier, but this is now the first of its kind in a large animal. Although the results are really promising, there's a lot of work left to do. It remains unclear how this kind of approach would scale to humans, although I think we're getting there. I mean, if you look at the pictures in this paper, it's a huge amount of tissue that is made up of the donated ES-derived cardiomyocytes. And the team, they're hoping to get to clinical trials in humans in 2020. But, you know, there's a few other concerns there. Most notably, there were some irregular heartbeats in a lot of the mice. But this is an important part of the study, too. I think they showed that intervention accounts for a, lar a large component of the irregular heartbeats, and they can stabilize in many cases. And we're going to go in deep on that when we talk to Chuck Murray, hopefully in the weeks to come. But this is a big story, mending broken hearts, Keith. It's so cool. Oh, it's amazing. I just had a friend who had a massive heart attack. And oh, this, is, this is the kind of thing that if it works in humans to regain 
that heart function to repair the scar tissue, the damage that gets done, you can get back to normal functioning faster. Or, I mean, a lot of people don't ever return to normal functioning after a massive heart attack. So just to be able to get closer to that is, it's going to affect people's quality of life. I can't wait. More research. Let's talk about this more. Let's do it. Oh, man, we're going to talk. We're going to talk. This yeah. nothing symbolizes, I think, the hope of regenerative medicine like heart repair. Yeah. You know, it's, it kills like half the people who die in the developed world. It's heart, heart disease. So, yeah. Can't wait for that interview. 2020. Hopefully, we won't wait till 2020 to talk to Chuck Murray. But um, no. <laughs> soon, soon. Next, new methods for making iPS cells from skin cells. So, Professor Timo Otankowski at uh, University of Helsinki and Professor Juha Carey at Karolinska and King's College London with their respective teams. They've now, for the first time, succeeded in converting skin cells into pluripotent stem cells by activating the cell's own genes. So we know the classic way, the Oxum and Yamanaka, et cetera, et cetera, there's a million ways now to reprogram cells. But this is using this new a kind of a blunted CRISPR, CRISPR-A. It's uh, the scissors of the CRISPR, the Cas portion doesn't cut DNA, but it does localize activating factors in the genome very specifically. And this is a really attractive possibility for reprogramming because you can target many genes at the same time. And also reprogramming the cell based on activation of endogenous genes rather than, you know, hitting them with a sledgehammer with the exogenous genes. It's theoretically at least like more physiological way of controlling cell fate. So it may result in more normal cells, you can imagine. You know, the CRISPR factors that activate the endogenous genes, they go away. So presumably you give them a kickstart and then they would activate on their own kind of steam, so to speak. And an important key factor, so what they did is they expressed, you know, they targeted the, the endogenous genes for the Yamanaka factors. But an important real mechanistic factor that relates more widely or broadly is that they, an important means of achieving the reprogramming was activating this critical genetic element it's called the ALU ALU motif that's enriched near embryonic genes. So if you can activate this motif that's around embryonic genes like the OXM genes, then that helps their own physiological reprogramming. And this is important because it suggests, you know, you might be able to target other reprogramming factors, say like tissue specific by addressing the genetic elements that are kind of specific for that tissue. So it's kind of a new paradigm of reprogramming where you target the endogenous factors, but also the endogenous kind of genetic elements that are local there. So you can augment the expression of these endogenous genes. This was in uh, Nature Communications, a new study on reprogramming of uh, cells that I think is more clinically practical, let's say, because you don't have to include endogenous or uh, exogenous factors, but we'll see how that trickles down into more therapeutic translational applications. Yeah, the ability to take just normal cells and turn them into these pluripotent cells has so much potential. Right. That's what we've been talking about forever. You know, that whole big fiasco with the acid baking or whatever. I don't want to you know, get my <laughs> yeah. drag through the mud on that. But like, that was it. There was this whole idea. I think we've gone from cells are absolute. You can't reprogram to now. It's like we can not without even adding really exogenous 
genetic factors. We can make cells do what we want them to do. Yeah, I just I just came across a story in the news today about a researcher. I can't remember who, who did it, but it's something about putting cells in a very specific shape container mm. <laughs> that that confining them to a particular space in they convert into pluripotent stem cells. I think people are going to need to look at that result as closely as the acid stuff you just brought up, but because they weren't adding any CRISPR, they weren't adding any external exogenous factors, it is really getting at the idea of what are the things that make a cell revert to that earlier stage for... I'll tell you what it is, Kiki, or will be one day, lasers. We're going to be doing it with lasers. Pew, 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 because we all know (laughs) that's the sound they make. That is what the sound they make, and that's how you get the job done. All right, well, I'll tell you who else is getting it done. You know, what's the engine of all motility? It's the muscles. Got to make them work. Well, we got an interesting source of regenerative muscle stem cells. You're not going to believe this, Mm. Keeks. Researchers at the University of Minnesota Medical School, they developed a process to regenerate skeletal muscle cells in mice with muscular dystrophy. Now, here's the kicker. Where do they get the cells? They get them from a teratoma. Yes. What? The benign tumor, teratoma, the thing that comes from ES cells that everybody hates and that we've been putting all these safeguards to avoid. Teratoma is now becoming the vehicle of amazing therapeutic dividends. In this study published in Cell Stem Cells July 5th, this year, Michael Kaiba and his colleagues at the Lillehay Heart Institute described their work in rebuilding muscle, essentially, okay? So to quote Dr. Kyber, the goal of this research was to seek in unexplored places a source of cells that, when transplanted, would rebuild skeletal muscle and demonstrate significant improvements in muscle strength and resilience. Yeah, what he doesn't say in that quote is that he's getting the cells from a tumor. The authors targeted cells from animal teratomas and found that by refining and sorting these cells to purify this kind of muscle skeletal muscle progenitor population, they're able to rebuild skeletal muscle in mice with muscular dystrophy. Okay, now listen to the numbers here. They injected a relatively small number of these teratoma muscle cells into disease muscle, found that they regenerated 80% of the muscle. Okay, right now we're at a state where you can generate 5 to 10% using conventional skeletal muscle progenitor cells. 80% these teratoma-derived cells, they also like populated and remained within this newly formed muscle. So, you know, it's unconventional source of cells with a really startling degree of potency, but it might make sense when you see these tumors grow, they essentially have all the rudiments of a embryo, but in a disorganized fashion. So you're really harnessing a physiological embryologic process in terms of cell proliferation. While the results are promising, of course, the authors note that the main advance is potential for regenerating these cells, the fact that they exist. But, you know, we're not really quite at therapy, obviously, at this point. Although they, you know, noteworthy, the cells that they injected showed no signs of forming teratomas or the potential to form teratomas. But of course, you need to go beyond the pale in terms of safety when you're isolating cells from a tumor to be applied therapeutically. But it's, I think, an interesting idea. To quote the first author, Sonny Chan, Quote, the fact that teratomas harbor cells of such greater potency than those that spontaneously differentiate when we culture them in a dish is remarkable. 
Indeed, beauty can be found in the most unexpected of places. Isn't that the truth, Kiki? It is, and beauty is in the eye of the beholder. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other quote that yeah. they say about teratomas. Teratomas have eyes in your beholder. This kind of falls, like you said, if you have to go beyond the pale, you have to have extraordinary evidence that there's really nothing negative that's going to come of using these cells. It's very similar to the virus-directed gene editing efforts that are being made. And you just have to know that it's all going to be cool, man. Got to make sure. Yeah. Make sure it's cool. But that's exciting. That's, I mean, is. 80% is massive. 80%? I could use 80% more <laughs> muscles. <laughs> Beach weather. Uh. All right, last story. I'm circling back to this whole CAR-T and solid tumor treatment because it really is, I think, the science of our time. What I'm talking about is these immune modulatory therapies, immune cell-based therapies that have become a real promising approach to better treat and potentially cure malignancies that are refractory to the conventional pharmacologic chemotherapeutic regimens and modalities. All right, so we talked last episode about some other kind of approaches using um, immune modulation, mobilization of tumor infiltrating cells, et cetera. Now we're talking about as the other kind, this CAR-T model, although this isn't in T cells. Remember, CAR-T is chimeric antigen receptor, and it's a way of reprogramming a T cell so that instead of homing in generically on any kind of you know invader, you can really kind of smart bomb it targeted to cancer, and it's having amazing results in treating uh, cancer, hematological specifically, that's refractory to other treatment regimens. But there's like downsides to them, namely, and we talked about this a little bit in past episodes, there's toxicity with the graft-versus-host disease, there's this acute phase cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity that have been an obstacle that we're getting over, but, you know, there's other things too. If you're going to use the T cell, the CAR T, you got to get the cells from the patient's own blood and then reprogramming. So there's another approach here, and that's using natural killer cells. So natural killer cells, it's another important part of the cellular immune system with a potent anti-tumor and antivirus infected cell ability or toxicity. And they mediate their activity without requiring the whole human leukocyte antigen matching, the HLA type matching. So because of these two factors, NK cells, they can function as off the shelf, allogeneic effector. You don't have to collect them from a patient or a specific donor for that matter. You can just take NK cells from any background. And if you're able to program them to target tumor cells, then you would have an off the shelf product. Uh, and that's what Dan Kaufman's group did at University of Minnesota, also at uh, La Jolla and UCSD, they have reprogrammed NK cells that they generated from iPS cells. So I should say they actually reprogrammed and generated CAR, chimeric antigen receptor activity in iPS cells, then differentiated those iPS cells to natural killer cells. And by those means, they were able to create essentially an unlimited reservoir of these targeted NK cells that targeted mesothelin, which is a highly expressed antigen in ovarian tumor. And then they showed that these cells off the shelf were able with higher efficiency and potency than typical conventional CAR-T or any other approach, were able to kill ovarian tumor in vitro and in vivo. You know, there's a lot of details there on the nitty gritty, but I mean, this is essentially an approach that's been 
it's been used by other groups in terms of the NK cells, in terms of the car technology. But what Kaufman's group here has done is they've consolidated all this tech under one umbrella and incorporated it into an IPS cell system and potentially generated a product that can be used like blood or plasma mm-hmm. off the shelf infused into a patient to kill tumor. So I think this is a direction that everybody hopes that it's going. And this is solid tumors, by the way, people, not hematological malignancies that have typically this approach has been confined to. We're getting into the realm of solid tumors. So that's amazing. You know, cancer, you know, you're not going to ever go away, but we're going to treat the F out of you. Absolutely. I mean, the idea that also it could be with these natural killer cells that the the immunotherapy that they're doing could be safer, that it could be used Mm -hmm. in more patients that we can, like you said, move out of the hematological, go into solid tumors, that the patient base would be larger. I mean, helping more people. I like it. We're there, Keeks. Well, almost. Ah, I'm excited. Five to 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) You got to ask Dr. Yamin about that. Five to 10 years, the famous trope. When are we talking to her? Are we ready to talk to Dr. Sam Yamin? We are ready, but before we get to the interview, Stem Cell Technologies wants to remind everyone about their Stem Diff Cerebral Organoid Kit for culturing cerebral organoids. These cutting-edge 3D mini-brains offer a more physiologically relevant model that recapitulates human brain development in vitro, allowing researchers to explore challenging age-old questions in new ways. The kit is based on the published formulation by Madeline Lancaster and Jürgen Noblick and is streamlined and optimized with an easy-to-follow protocol. It's serum-free and allows you to culture cerebral organoids from human ES cells and IPS cells. Check it out at www.stemcell.com slash stemdiffco. That's stemcell.com slash S-T-E-M-D-I-F-F-C-O. All right, so now on to our interview. Our guest today is Samantha Yamin. Samantha is a PhD student at the University of Toronto, where she currently researches how brain stem cells build the brain during embryonic development and how the same populations of stem cells persist into the adult brain, where they can maintain the diversity of cell types needed for brain function. In addition to her work as a researcher, Sam has embraced modern communication methods as a way to allow more people to get excited about learning science and giving it the support it needs. She's very passionate about using social media like Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to create new and broadly accessible lines of communication between the public and scientists. So here to talk to us about all of her adventures in science is Science Sam Yamin. Thanks for joining us on this show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's wonderful. I've followed you on Instagram and Twitter for a while now, and so it's neat to get to actually meet you in the virtual face-to-face world of our interview. But I guess just to get started, how did you get interested in science? Like, where did all this passion come from? Yeah, I think that I am one of those cliche stories of, like, always being interested since I was a kid. But I was always interested in really broad areas of science. I was interested at one point in geology. I was interested in chemistry. I wanted to be a perfumist. And so that was kind of a fun phase of my childhood, experimenting with products around the home and making my mom perfume that she never wore (laughs) for a good reason. And then I think when I was about 14 years old uh, in high school, 
I became really interested in people and that interest in the really interesting people around me that I was seeing in high school got me interested in the brain. And ever since I was 14, I discovered the word neuroscience and I've been like blinders on that path towards learning more about neuroscience ever since. I mean, I know this is kind of the alt career slot that we have here, uh, this series that we're doing with our guests. But I mean, of mm -hmm. all of our alt careers, you're, you know, the most not alt in that you're also shooting <laughs> for a PhD and perhaps trying to take the conventional academic path. But Along those lines, tell us about your work. I mean, what's your PhD focused on? And, you know, you told us how you came to be interested in the brain. Maybe you could give us some mm -hmm. details about what your specific research focus is. Yeah, continuing from, you know, originally being interested in the brain, I got interested in my undergraduate degree, which I did at the University of Toronto. I did some undergraduate research in neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, so I was studying Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And that was really interesting to me because there are some people in my family suffering from those diseases, unfortunately. But as I learned more about how the brain degenerates, I realized that the opposite could be really exciting, both as a therapeutic avenue, but even just to tell us, you know, to help us solve some of the mysteries that we were getting stuck with in our research. So I decided to kind of spin everything for my PhD and study regeneration instead of degeneration. And I became, that's what led me to stem cells because stem cells, while everyone thinks about them as these exciting therapeutic avenue to explore, which they can be, the really cool thing is that stem cells teach us how any organ really can be built. And so for me, my project really took on a form of trying to understand how the billions of cells of the brain, and I'm just focusing on uh, the four brains, so like a subregion of the brain in mice, how is it formed sequentially through stem cells during development, even before a mouse in this case is born. And so that's been a labor of love for the past almost six years now, trying to map out just like how you have a family tree mapping out the lineage of stem cells uh, in the prenatal brain. We actually find there are a bunch of different types of stem cells. Us and other people have studied these different types of neural stem cells. And now we're trying to find out the differences. And my work is all about what types of progeny do each of those different types of stem cells make? And why would you need different types of stem cells? And what's so unique about their progeny? How can we target them and kind of even find good markers for them so we can study them more? Where are you in the process of your education there? Can you give us a little insight into yeah. the process? I am in good old year six. So I am PhD candidate now. I'm almost ready to graduate. I'm actually now in the last few weeks of experiments, and then I'll start writing up my thesis. And so we're looking to graduate by December, January. Let's cross our fingers. <laughs> if I say it here, it'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's been a really good, a really good road. I'm actually quite really, really happy with the, it's been a long but good journey to this point. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges and the, the stumbling blocks that you've come across? I mean, we, all of us in our research, and it's particularly during that, that graduate phase, you're working with your cells, you're working on your research, and things don't work. Did you go down any blind alleys and have to turn around? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think if you didn't, then I don't know. I think that's part of science. I think if you're studying the unknown, there's going to be ditches. And I really, in the beginning, for the first like two years, maybe more, 
I work with a really rare cell type. The neural stem cell that we study is incredibly rare. You know, there's maybe like a hundred per brain. So we're talking like actually, like everyone says rare. This one is rare. And so if you so much as like leave the cells an extra minute out, everything dies. Uh, everything's different. You know, so they're rare. They're fussy. You have to be so perfect. And things were not going really well the first few years. And it was really my mentor who was, she was kind of where I am now. She was just about to graduate when I started. She took me under her wing, let me work on some of her projects with her and kind of like took me in that way so that I could, you know, be with someone who knows what they're doing, get my first data in a collaborative manner. And then that gave me some confidence to go back and design my experiments a little bit better so that I didn't run into all those problems. But the like second year trench is real. (laughs) (laughs) It was real. It was was awful. I actually panicked so much that I wasn't going to reclassified to the PhD because I entered as a master's student. And it was so difficult that I wasn't going to do it, even though I'd always wanted to do a PhD. And I actually like signed up for the LSAT and was like, maybe I'll just switch. And I like arguing. Science is arguing. So is law. And I had a real like quarter life crisis. That's a really great point that people don't talk enough about how specific the trenches, it's kind of like when you're getting into a lab, you don't have your own work yet. You haven't had things work. You don't have your trajectory. And that is, like you said, that's so real. Do you think that the more important, I guess you can only speak for yourself, but you talked about the mentorship and not really mm-hmm. like the your advisor mentorship, which you know mm-hmm. can be kind of, especially nowadays in big labs, you may not get as much attention as a grad student from your PhD advisor or you know, in some cases. So it seems like you had like a middle mentor who's, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much your forebear, which was seemed to be a critical thing. Do you think it's intrinsic as well? Do you think it's more extrinsic factors that carry you through the trench? Or do you think that you kind of have to just dig in and push through? I'm going to give the annoying answer that it's always a little bit of both. You know, my mentors were always, the older students in the lab were always giving me really good advice that in retrospect, I should have listened to, but you still have to figure it out on your own. And that's the point. That's how we do, I think, in places in the world, including North America, where we kind of don't have a fixed number of years for our PhDs. It's kind of like you finish when you finish, unlike in the UK, for example. Those programs are designed so that you have the freedom and the, the space to screw up and figure it out on your own. I think you can go too far. And I think you know, I was at risk of going too far and just like never asking for help and just always figuring out alone. And then you waste a lot of time. I was kind of working on a new system in the lab. No one had done that age that I was studying. So I kind of had to do it on my own. But I think it's really important to have mentors that you can go to that will save you the unnecessary time. Like you need to struggle to truly figure it out and to get on the path to an interesting project, I think, which has a lot of unknowns. But I don't think we need to struggle as much as we always do. And so the mentorship is kind of key for like that that little hump that you could just avoid. I think the point there that you're bringing up that's so important is not being afraid to ask for help. Yeah. You don't have to do it alone. There are other people who have done it before you. There were just so many personalities in my first year class were like wonderful people, but everyone's just so nervous that we all just try to front like we know what we're doing and you don't know what you're doing. If you did, you wouldn't, these degrees wouldn't exist. The point of these degrees is to not know and to do something completely novel. And instead we get in our program and we're all just like, we're so smart. <laughs> and then it, then you, you have to prove yourself and then imposter syndrome and, you know, it's just awful. 
but it doesn't need to be. And I think the more we talk and the more we're connected online, where we can be a little more comfortable to be honest, I think that really helps to bypass that stuff. Yeah. And so that brings us to the point of talking about talking online. You have a great following on Instagram, on Twitter. People, you know, have been seeking you out for your information. But what first got you into communicating? I think the first video I saw of you online was you standing in a public square on a milk carton yeah. <laughs> answering <laughs> questions. You know, I'm like, oh, this girl has guts. She's just out there doing it. Yeah, that was for uh, Soapbox Science, which if anyone listening hasn't heard of that, go look it up. It is so cool. And if it's not in your city, bring it to your city because it's an incredible experience. Before I go into that, I could talk about it forever because I love it. I've always been really passionate about teaching and mentoring. I like tutored all throughout undergrad, for example, and even a bit to this day. I'm a teaching assistant. I mentor students in the like undergrads in the lab. And I was doing a lot of local outreach events, going to classrooms, talking to high school students. And I was kind of thinking like, you know, I don't really have time to do this as much as I want to. How can I scale this up and, and make it a little more high throughput? And my best friend, Michelle, she said, well, why aren't you on Instagram talking about things there? Because I haven't seen anyone doing that and you're really good at it. Why don't you do it there? It took me about a year to finally listen to her. Should have listened to her sooner. And then I just started doing it there. And we've all just, you know, a bunch of us trying the same thing, found each other, built a community, and it's really taken off. There's so many of us online. If you aren't familiar with any Instagrammers talking about science, there's uh, the Sci community, the STEM squad, and hashtag scientists who selfie are really good ways to find the whole mix of people on there doing stuff. So I have to jump in here as kind of pseudo Luddite in terms of the whole <laughs> social networking thing. I don't have any of the accounts. I only look at yeah. pictures through my wife's account to see my own <laughs> kids. We call that a lurker. I'm a lurker. <laughs> I lurk. But I, I, in fairness to me, I'm lurking just to see how widely my wife is disseminating photos of my children is what I'm kind of concerned about. But um, the, 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 the reason... <laughs> a paranoid, yes, for sure. It's nothing good about it, I will confess. But I, I guess as long as I'm being honest, I don't know what, like when you talk about those communities and there may be a lot of other lurkers and weirdos like me. And I guess maybe this is an opportunity to kind of encapsulate for me and maybe yeah. some of the audience, what is the, the nature of the science communication? Like in terms of four examples, could you tell us how does and what type of science gets communicated in these fora? Yeah, it's a great question because it's totally new. And I would also want to start by saying it's not for everyone. And that's OK. I definitely don't think everyone needs to join an online community. But I think if you're not finding local communities, I think it's a good option to explore. So just to start with that, there are scientists, engineers, mathematicians, technologists, artists who are in the science art world, basically anything you could think of, that's the rule of the internet, it exists. Uh, there's someone online there, perhaps in some way communicating, bunch on YouTube, bunch on Twitter, bunch on Instagram, uh, fewer on Facebook, but they still exist there. And in any case, you'll have, especially on Twitter, a lot of scientists talking to each other, but also doing great outreach. But that Twitter is a great way to connect with people, for example, at scientific conferences and to build an actual like scientific community of colleagues and even to find your next opportunities for jobs. I've had a lot of good professional networking through Twitter. And then Instagram, you can also connect with people kind of, especially at the trainee level, because we're kind of the 
higher demographic on Instagram. It's a bit of a younger platform. You can also connect with peers, but we've also been finding really good success because it's a visual platform. It's more picture driven. It's a really great way to use the picture as a hook to catch a new audience. So for example, my friend Jennifer Ma, she's at It's Like Pudding. She does lettering, like calligraphy. And so she'll letter in beautiful artistic way, some scientific word no one's ever heard of. And then people will stop and look at it because it's beautiful. And then they read her caption and they learn about science. And so she's reaching a ton of people who have never taken science beyond high school, let's say, just through that by finding a common interest and then using it to teach. We're on there putting out our own content. And then we're also engaging with one another, making new friends. We have, you know, private chats. We have a Slack group. We have a Facebook group where we can build a relationship more privately. And it's just incredible. Now, every time I travel to a new city, I, you know, post in one of these forums and I ask, hey, who's in the city? Let's do a meetup. And then you get to meet so many people that way, which is incredible, in my opinion. What is the emphasis for the communication that you do? I mean, you've mentioned all these different ways of communicating. And, you know, we in science communication, we talk about your audience. Who is your audience specifically and what are you trying to share? Yeah, my audience is varied. There are tons of aspiring scientists. There are tons of peers, tons of academics who follow. And they really engage a lot because they have very specific questions that hard to find another PhD online. So I think I get a lot of of those, which I I love, and it's great to exchange information. So lots of high school students interested in science, tons of undergrads interested in science, tons of fellow PhDs, but also tons of parents who, you know, they're trying to get their kids interested in science. And so you won't see that in your data, but I'll get parents messaging me videos of their kids asking me a question. And then I can reply back with a video of me in the lab next to a microscope to this, you know, eight-year-old girl and be like, hey, you're interested in science? Look, I work with this microscope and I show her and, you know, I didn't have that option when I was a kid. There's a lot of uh, parents as well with their kids and just a lot of people with general interest and they think, hey, I don't know anything about science. This is cool. Let me follow along with this girl. Like, what is a lab? That wasn't a helpful answer because it's it's all over the place. Well, there's got to be inclusive in there, some trolls as well. I'm sure my wife has an online business and she hates these message boards because she's developed a good bit of expertise on whatever it is and go on these boards and people will ask stuff of her and she'll respond earnestly. If she doesn't know something, she'll say, I don't know. But a lot of times when she responds, (laughs) there's a whole collection of people who's like there, they open with, you're an idiot. Do you get a lot of people that are just pretty much like, who do you think you are? Blah, 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 blah. So I will say in my experience, and I've seen other people say this, it's not only anecdotal, but YouTube, for example, and kind of Facebook are some of the worst for trolls. (laughs) They are just, the trolls are nigh on those platforms. You know, most of the internet. Instagram, (laughs) Instagram, for whatever reason, and other people have said this, it's not just me. I think, I don't know what they're doing. They need to improve in a lot of ways, but it's a really nice platform. Like there are barely any negative comments. It's really easy to report and block when you do get them. And people are just really nice. Like you'll get the occasional kind of, you know, creepy dude, (laughs) but (laughs) you know, (laughs) it's pretty occasional and you know, the, it's not even bad, but the most frequent negative comment I get is like, Hey, why aren't you wearing a lab coat in the lab? And my answer is usually 
because I don't need to. <laughs> nobody <laughs> actually wears a lab coat. <laughs> yes. Except when EHS is visiting. We all know that <laughs> nobody wears a lab coat until you're being inspected. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we do it when we need to when working with certain cell types, but most of the time, like, I don't need to. And also, it's a picture for Instagram, so I'm not going to put on my lab coat. <laughs> Uh, FYI, guys, I'm wearing flip-flops right now. <laughs> uh, I am too, but they're covered in the toe region. So. Oh. There we go. <laughs> Being safe. Safety third. Yeah. So <laughs> this brings us kind of around the troll. It kind of brings us around to the idea of the mentorship and the people who are role models. Something that was very important for myself getting into science communication in my career was having a PI who was supportive of my goals to get into podcasting and communication. I'd love two questions here. First, how has your support network been for these efforts as you're going through your graduate program? And second, there was a pretty striking article or opinion article written on the last page of the science, AAAS Science Magazine a few months ago that was very critical of your efforts in science communication, specifically on Instagram. And can we talk about that a little bit? So I think the support is absolutely necessary. And I always say you don't only need like role models, you need champions, you need those mentors who are really going to go out of their way to show you new opportunities to amplify your voice and highlight what you're doing. And I've been really lucky to get that. My supervisor is very supportive. He gives me time and is very flexible with schedule. So that's been great. And, and he also cares a lot about science outreach. So he's wonderful about that. And my lab mates are phenomenal. And then I've met so many incredibly supportive people online and built this like incredible uh, community that way. On to the science article. I'm really open to criticism. I think what I'm doing and what others are doing uh, is really new. And I think that there are, are tons of ethical conversations we need to have about productive ways to use social media, especially for scientists. And I've been fortunate to go to some conferences where we discuss the ethics in science communication and those need to happen. And I'm really open and receptive to critiques people might have. Unfortunately, I think the critique that was written in such a prestigious journal was not an informed critique. I think that it would have benefited from a prior discussion with experts who kind of know the data, because in fact, we do have a lot of data about what we're doing and we're being very evidence-based. And I think the critique that was intended was just that women and other marginalized groups bear a lot of the outreach burden. And I very much find that to be true in my own circles and by looking at the data. I think that that's fair. I just think we need to see that different people do things for different reasons and people find value in different ways. And it's no one else's right to really critique whether someone's getting a value. I think we need to just keep looking at the data. It's true that, you know, academic professors who do a lot of outreach, that's not weighted into their tenure applications, for example, or to the funding grants. In a lot of cases, sometimes it is. It's starting to be. So we need to really, if, if women are bearing the burden of that, we need to make sure that we're valuing that and we're putting that into tenure assessments. But in our case of uh, those of us online, we're getting great value. It's high throughput, so it doesn't take up that much time. We're finding ways to get sponsorships and collaborations that are furthering our careers. And it's like, I don't really know what the point was in that case. I think yeah. uh, a lot of people would agree with you. I think we should note that the Science Magazine editorial staff pretty much coughed to the fact that there was it was a mistake in oversight and the whole format there where they essentially 
dragged you through the mud with not a good lot of cause using your name. I thought it was reprehensible. And I thought they should have come out yeah. with a, a specific apology to you. And I challenged them there. But I mean, that being said, I think that what you touched upon is really important mm -hmm. because it is the dynamic is shifting, right? There's these other things like the tenure track idea that you brought yeah. in there is really relevant because the nature of what it is to be a valued member of the scientific community, especially mm -hmm. in an academic setting, is in flux, perhaps. But I wonder if, you know, like many things, if the old white man's club is really, it's just fundamentally in opposition to that. Do you think that in 30 years, you know, the analogy I like to think of is like PowerPoint. If some rich old, I mean, an old white man funded out the wazoo, came and gave his talk using, you know, a slide wheel with a slide instead of PowerPoint, you would say, well, that's just ridiculous. And you might make the argument that the networking platforms or social, whatever it is, has a place in science and that only the Luddites and the anti-progressives would be against it and they have no place in the future in, in science. Do you think that 30 years on, everybody is going to be on board with the social networking or do you think it's going to be siloed up as ever and there's going to be a whole contingent of people who say social has no place? I hope that we can get to a point where everyone, it's like such a millennial phrase, but like you do you. If you don't like it, don't do it. And if you don't like it, it's probably not for you. You don't have to do it. I think that not everyone needs to be doing it. I don't think every PI has time nor should have to have a Twitter account, for example. But if they find value in that, I don't think they should be judged or reprimanded for doing that. I also think that if they build a big audience, they shouldn't be self-promoting too much work that is not peer-reviewed because that is against the scientific process. So I think we need to be careful with the ethics there. But I don't think it's necessarily completely good or completely bad. But I think we need to let people who are using those platforms do it because they're probably using it for a reason. You know, I wasn't getting asked by science or I wasn't feeling confident to go write for science. And so I wrote on Instagram where I felt comfortable. And that's telling us something about our academic journals and the thing that trainees with important things to say don't feel comfortable going to the journals and are making their own platforms. I don't know. I think we should let them do that. There's probably a reason and it's probably a little bit their fault for not being welcoming. There is a lot of talk right now in the scientific community about how publishing needs to change. And maybe this is one aspect of how it can catch up with the cultural changes that are taking place within the younger generation of scientists who will be doing the bulk of research in 30 years. This article that we've brought up, it really did single you out, you know, kind of out of nowhere. And you were doing your own thing. Were you surprised to be suddenly named in the article? And then how has it affected your work online since? Yeah, I felt really betrayed to be singled out. But to be honest, I don't care that much what like, again, there are certain people who's, I don't really care what people think so much. <laughs> I already know that people might be holding those beliefs. I thought it was really unprofessional and inappropriate and a really bad editorial mistake for me to be singled out. But that part was whatever. That was the least of it. The thing that really bothered me most was the confirmation bias that it served for people who hold those beliefs. And now they have it legitimized by Science Magazine. So that was what really bothered me. The singling out, like, it's fine. I can deal. People are going to hate me, whatever. I'm public. Haters going to hate. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's part of the whatever. But and the fact that I had a bunch of high school uh, girls who follow me 
message me and say, hey, that's, you know, is what they said true? Like, is this true? Because that's what I've been worried about wanting to pursue science. And now seeing it written about you, like they called me like in tears and that bugged me, like take me down fine, but don't affect my people. I think because in proving it wrong, actually, because I've been able to build successful connections online and because it's so useful to be online, it's led to many opportunities where people were like, you know, we were really interested in in your work anyways already and we hadn't reached out yet, but let's do this now because we want to amplify your voice despite what's happened to lift you back up after what happened. And I was able to present alongside Danny Washington at the USA Science and Engineering Festival, you know, alongside incredible science communicators that I didn't feel worthy to share a stage with. So many great opportunities. I got to meet the folks at ASAP Science, uh, who I've looked up for them, to them forever, got to speak at a lot of panels about kind of diversity and inclusivity issues in STEM. And I think it's led to a lot of good things. But that said, I don't think I would have preferred to have gotten there in my own time and not to have to go there to talk about something negative. And so I think people just like be respectful, you know, use the platforms that you're privileged to have respectfully. Well, I'll say, Sam, and I encourage all the listeners to read your response, because when you look at your response relative to the initial article, you see that you wrote with composure and logic and made your case. And the other article was frankly just kind of like inflammatory and biased. And I don't know. I mean, I thought it was inappropriate. But that said, it, I think it jump started you. I think in spite of the fact that you maybe would have preferred to do it on your own time. I mean, your star is rising, my dear. What's next? What's going to be? Do you think you'll go traditional science or do you see a completely new path for you that, you know, maybe kind of either straddling or maybe outside of the lab? Do you have any idea? Are you going to do a postdoc traditional? What's next? Yeah, my plan is to stick around in research for a bit. There's some work to be done to wrap up my paper and I definitely want to finish that up. But I'd really love to continue on with science communication because I see a really big opportunity to do things in a new way, build off the wonderful work people have done, collaborate with some people who I think are really disrupting the way we talk about science. And that's the route I want to go into. I'd love to just see what happens creating what's been in my head for the last little while and sharing some of the enthusiasm I've been lucky to build up working in a lab for the last few years. And I think that's really important for the future of science, you know, not just me, but I think this kind of idea of innovating the way we share science, I think will be really important to keep seeing science funded and seeing strong science policies being made. And I think when we look around the world right now, we know that that needs to happen. So I'm really passionate in being a part of science communication and innovation so that we can have better policy and ultimately better innovation for the future. You're definitely part of a rising tide, a wave, a a surge in this efforts. And I think your work is very important and I wish you the best in this. Thank you so much. I appreciate the support so much. It's been a really good, everyone's so great. It's good. Use the negative, as Dalen said, turn it to the positive side. We like to end our interviews with one last question. And for you, I'd love to know, as you're finishing your PhD and you're moving into your next efforts, what advice do you have for grad students who are also out there looking potentially for something more than just science research in their careers? I would say don't settle. Don't be entitled. Be willing to put in the work. Try things out. 
you have to collect the negative data just like you do in the lab. I've tried out a lot of different careers. Every single year, I switched my mind what I wanted to do, collected a lot of negative data, ended up finding that what I wanted to do didn't exist. And so instead of settling for what's what I could find visibly in front of me, I decided let's try something new. And I think that as long as we go about that willing to put in the work, I think that can be really, really powerful. And so just trying new things, not ever settling for less than you deserve and putting yourself out there and actually trying for more than you think you're capable of um, while still doing it, doing it collaboratively with others as well. Not like tearing other people down to get a new opportunity, but working together to create new things. Fantastic. I think that's great advice. I'm still new, so we'll see how it works out. (laughs) (laughs) It seems to be working just fine for you so far. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It's just been wonderful talking with you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it so much. You're welcome. What is your Instagram and Twitter? I mean, just so that everyone can find you and follow you if they want to. You can find me on Instagram as science.sam, so at science.sam. And then basically everywhere else, I'm searchable by Hey Science Sam. It's like you're saying, hey. So everyone out there, you can follow Sam in these ways if you are interested. All of you, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email us info at stemcellpodcast.com. Don't forget to take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com and be sure to tune in for our next episode in two weeks. Dalen, Sam, everyone, this concludes episode 121 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for another great show.